Do all states have a pension plan? And and if so, are some states better than state pension plans better than others? And you see quite a bit of a spectrum, though. And it really highlights that the design of these systems is a really big deal. Because what we see is that it's not everybody is underfunded the same. In, in fact, what we see is that there's a few states like Wisconsin, like Washington state, like New York state, where you have very big pension systems that are pretty well funded, like 100%, maybe over 100% funded. And when you get it, and it's inevitably, when you ask, what's the difference? Why, why are some 100% and some 50, 40, 30% funded? The difference is in design and management. What's actually happened is that the mechanism that was used to build that particular one in each state didn't foresee all the risks and problems and you know potential downsides that could come in the future. And so they didn't build in the right shock absorbers. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential. And here's your host, Jeff Crank. Welcome to another episode of American Potential. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this issue because it affects so many people, whether they're, you know, public employees or whether they're taxpayers. This issue really affects you. When people think about planning for retirement, most have heard of a 401k plan. But, you know, for many state and local government workers, it's common to have a pension plan. It sounds kind of nice to have a guaranteed income that's backed by law saying you have to receive it. But how beneficial is it to the employee? How beneficial is it to the state, to the city, or to the county budget? The Pension Integrity Project at Reason Foundation tackles the issue of pension reform to ensure its advantages extend to public employees retirees, and taxpayers. Now, because public pension debt is on the rise, it's important to have retirement plans that are affordable along with transparent and accountable management. Because if they aren't, it could lead to a decrease in public services. And all too often, you know, politicians make promises that aren't backed up with enough funding to keep these pension funds fully funded. Well, today's guest is the Senior Managing Director for the Pension Integrity Project and has been featured in leading publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, as well as appearing on CNN, Fox News Channel, Fox Business, and many other media outlets. He's testified before the U.S. Congress, as well as the Arizona, Florida, Michigan, and Texas state legislatures on this issue. I want to welcome Leonard Gilroy, who is the Vice President of Government Reform for Reason Foundation. Uh, Lynn, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so let's talk about kind of the history of pensions. This is an interesting uh, interesting thing. As most, uh, most, I guess, non-government workers have kind of moved to 401k plans that are portable, things like that. But talk about the history behind pensions, if you will. Sure. Um, for most folks that work in the public sector, meaning for government as a city employee, county employee, state employee, teacher, maybe public safety worker, those are typically what we what we find. Um, they've tended to historically, for the last century or so, 
across the United States been it has been ubiquitous that they've been served by retirement plans that take the form of a defined benefit pension along the lines that you just described. What it basically means is that governments um, at the employer in that case um, hire someone and essentially if you agree to work for X number of years, um, then in retirement, the employer would then promise to um, provide an annual pension benefit through the for the rest of their lives. Um, that would be based on a, essentially a formula that is tied to their some some salary number, maybe the last five years of salary, some average, something like that. But basically, think you know something near your final salary, and get you some share of that in retirement each and every year, as a as you as you inferred earlier, a constitutionally protected. Um, guaranteed retirement benefit, which is very different than um, what we tend to see today in the private sector, in the corporate world and and that sort of thing, which are uh, what are called defined contribution style plans, which are essentially the employer puts in money, the employee puts in money, and typically that's used to then invest and build a a corpus that generates a retirement plan over many years. Um, That's, you could say, self-directed and not guaranteed to make some specific number. So there is some risk. Um, what we've seen is that in, historically, the public and private sectors used to be very similar up until about the 1980s, when the private sector started realizing because they were offering the kind of um, you know essentially uh, guaranteed type full life retirement plans, and then they realized in the 80s, 70s, 80s, not into the 90s, a wave kind of went through the the private sector world where they realize that the, the risks inherent in those kinds of promises, plus the costs of servicing and providing those benefits, tended to be to get way beyond what were originally anticipated. And so the private sector started shifting away towards the, you know, these uh, more defined contribution style plans, where the, the risk is just making sure you have the money right up front that year to put into it, and then there's no more obligation on the employer's part after that. And so it's the tension maybe between those two worlds that we've seen kind of, you know, um, play out over the last few decades as the public sector is now looking at the similar kind of environment over the last 20 years or so. There have been a number of recessions and shocks in the system, you know, for a variety of reasons um, economically that have hit public pension systems and now have created over a trillion dollars of unfunded public sector pension liabilities. And they're kind of in the same boat the private sector was years ago when they were looking at it going, wow, there were risks that we didn't foresee, a trillion dollars in unfunded pension liabilities, plus the rising cost of servicing those promises, which governments have definitely um, felt as well. So that's basically been the, the trend. So who is on the hook for these un- this unfunded liability ultimately? By and large, in most places, unless they've consciously, proactively done some reform or done something different, um, the taxpayer, uh, the employer slash taxpayer, we say it's employer slash taxpayer, because if you think of how that construct works, you know, governments are aggregating taxpayer dollars to then hire staff. And so what you essentially have are the employer and the taxpayer one and the same in that situation where the risk then falls on the unfunded liabilities. The 1.3 or so trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities that are sitting there right now that public pension systems are reporting today, um, that is almost entirely borne by the the taxpayer 
slash employer. So if they run out of, you know, money or, you know, municipalities, they, they get stressed fiscally. If a next recession comes and tax revenues drop, then what you start to see is pressure towards, you know, services being squeezed to make room for that obligated fixed benefit. And so we tend to say that what, what that creates is a dynamic where the cost pressure can essentially create a situation where the department of the past starts to crowd out the department of the current or the department of the future, mm-hmm. you know, through those long-term obligations. Yeah. So, so the people, the taxpayers ultimately are on the hook, if you will, for, for these defined benefit plans, but they're also generally those taxpayers are the same people who now uh, have less certainty. They're, they're not on, generally they're not on a defined benefit plan. They're on a defined contribution plan, a 401k plan of some kind. So they have less certainty in their own retirement, but yet they're still being asked uh, to, to kind of be on the hook for these defined benefit plans, right? Right. Essentially. I mean, you have a, it is a, it's a world in which taxpayers who by and large are not receiving, um, you know, defined benefit pensions by and large in their, you know, in their normal life are then inherently being asked to provide that for, for another group of workers, you know, in the public sector. So it does create a disparity there between, um, what the typical offerings are that you would find in those sectors. And, um, it, it can create some, some tension, you know, and, and, uh, sure. and frustration. Right. So now do all states have a pension plan? And and if so, are some states better than state pension plans better than others? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. Um, cause it's pretty interesting. Not all states have, well, let me say this differently. All states have a defined benefit pension system right now, but not all are sending their new hires into it. Mm-hmm. So Alaska, for example, is a state um, that has back about 15, 16, 17 years ago, um, made a big reform, put basically stopped putting people into defined benefit pensions entirely, um, shifted to a defined contribution style structure, and basically um, the bulk of you know the vast majority of state local workers, teachers hired uh, in the intervening period have gone into um, that new system. So it's sort of a parallel system where essentially they're um, continuing to pay off the liabilities of the old system as they create a new vehicle for the future. Um, uh, Mostly, though, most states are providing defined benefit pensions or local governments. Some are at the state level, some just local governments run them themselves. Um, So you see a big mix out there. The vast majority, though, are that. And you see quite a bit of a spectrum, though. And it really highlights that the design of these systems is a really big deal. Because what we see is that it's not everybody is underfunded the same. In, in fact, what we see is that there's a few states like Wisconsin, like Washington State, like New York State, where you have very big pension systems that are pretty well funded, like 100%, maybe over 100% funded. And when you get it, and it's inevitably when you ask the what's the difference between that and say Illinois or Kentucky or other states where you might have heard you know have have you know lots of unfunded pension liabilities. Um, and are, and it's been a very difficult slog trying to tackle it. What's the difference? Why why are some 100 percent and some 50, 40, 30 percent funded? The difference is in design and management. And if you, it's not that there's something inherently wrong with a defined benefit pension, just generally in theory. 
what's actually happened is that the mechanism that was used to build that particular one in each state didn't foresee all the risks and problems and you know potential downsides that could come in the future. And so they didn't build in the right shock absorbers. And when you look at the ones who are 100% funded, or in Canada, all these like Ottawa, you know, all these Canadian provinces out there have pretty well-run pension systems that are pretty affordable and are not under massively underfunded. And it's the same thing. They built mechanisms into sort of shock absorbers that when markets go south, things change, things react. And that's what a lot of states just didn't have built in was any shock absorber built in. So typically that's where a lot of the unfunded liabilities actually come from. So, and I'm somewhat familiar with Alaska and, and what's been happening there. There, there's lots of folks that try and make the argument that if you go away from a defined benefit plan to a defined contribution plan, and again, this is, this is now most taxpayers would now be on a defined a contribution plan. If, if they're still yep. working, they're paying into a defined contribution plan. So what we're asking when we ask people to, to go to a defined benefit plan, if somebody's asking them to go to that, we're asking taxpayers to pay for a retirement system that they themselves generally don't have, right? And so I think that's important for us to understand. But there are some people that would make the argument that if you don't have a defined benefit plan in government, that you're not going to be able to to get quality workers and retain quality workers. Is that the case? Have we seen that be the case? So we're seeing that argument a lot these days. We're hearing it in Alaska. We're hearing it in a variety of different red states, blue states, purple states. There's been a refrain post-COVID, post-big increase in inflation that we've all experienced the last few years. There's been, I would say, an energized attempt to go back and start looking at retirement benefits as some driver of the workforce, when what we've really just sort of seen is there was already a trend towards younger workers not working a full career at one employer. I mean, that's been a trend, like a long-term secular kind of trend going on for a long time. That's a generational shift. Nobody thinks about these days, you know, anybody who has kids under 20, nobody talks about going to work for government or anywhere as if you're going to go work for life in one place. The, 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 the data on college students exiting college and getting into the workforce would suggest that they have at least a handful of jobs in the first five to 10 years after leaving college and going in. Some go to be a teacher and they think it's going to be, a, you know, the thing they want to do for their career. And a few years in, they'd realize that it's not necessarily the, the job for them. I mean, we see that. And, and, and there's also just a, a, a pattern of folks wanting different types of career experience. So where they might want to spend some time in the private sector, maybe spend some time doing public service in the public sector, going back and, and shifting a career. You see a lot, a lot in things like IT, even, which is an increasing, you know, function of government that is getting invested. We're not, we're investing in people to work more AI and machines and technology. And so that's the world that government needs to really be mapping its future toward. And in no other in no private sector company do are they basically saying maybe we should reopen pensions to try to attract people. What they've got is a very competitive workforce right now. You know, there's not, I mean, there's just not lots of jobs out there. I mean, we may see that, we will see that shift at some point when the economy starts to cool and things 
take a different pattern. Then we're going to see the dynamic shift. But we basically, we were hearing from different states all the last two years, folks saying, well, look, it's, it's a hard trying to recruit and retain people in the public service. It's just really hard trying to do that. And I think if you got a group of HR executives from both the public and the private sectors all in one room, they would all say the same thing. They would all say, it's hard hiring people. It's hard recruiting and retaining them right now. And so usually, though, in the private sector, what they do is they go, huh, well, that's a signal. It's hard. What should we do? We'll throw more at salaries. We'll try to incentivize. We'll outcompete. And we will do that on salaries, not some hypothetical retirement benefit that you may not see, you know, for 30 sure. years, right? And so for some reason in the public sector, we still are relying on this antiquated notion and legislators are, I think, unfortunately, still buying this, that these, you know, and I think you see legislatures that tend to be a little older. They may still believe that, you know, governments are good jobs. You go get out of school and go work for government forever. And that's just not the way the workforce even is anymore. So we would argue that, you know, for recruitment, nobody today, no one thinks about recruitment from any kind of retirement angle. They just want to know, does this retirement benefit look like something I might get if I go work at the IT shop next door or so, something like that, right? Right. Um, does it look comparable? Is it competitive? And, you know, they look at a whole range of benefits, not just that. And I think what we, what we don't see that discussion as much as it sh we should be having it in the public sector, which is, who are we what are we trying to build? For the future, who are we trying to hire? And it's we're basically trying to hire people that are in a competitive job market. So we believe at Reason Foundation, it doesn't say you shouldn't even offer a pension, but what we would say is it like the workforce dynamic today is one where recruitment and retention nobody pays attention to retirement from a recruitment and retention standpoint. Maybe if you've been already working there for 15 years. Re retention, you might have more of a pull toward your retirement benefit, but that's most people are gone before they get to 15 years. What we would say is that governments really need to be thinking about who are you trying to hire? What is the best way to be competitive? And if you feel like you need a stratified system where maybe you want, we would say it's perfectly rational, maybe have choices where you would default into a benefit that is kind of like Alaska that would be more mapped to your actual workforce, which turns over quickly, uh, where a pension is not going to benefit them. In fact, they leave money on the table when they leave early as an employee. It's kind of a perverse thing. Um, we would say maybe aim at sort of more of like what the private sector prototype is, which is people who don't work full careers, give them the benefit that Mac, like a defined contribution plan and a good, build a good defined contribution plan that maximizes the benefit while people are working there. And then when they leave, they take a good benefit with them. So you become a good competitive employer. But, and then if you feel like you need to have that additional benefit for those who work a full career, you could like the state of Florida, for instance, or Arizona or other states have choice plans. Michigan teachers works this way where you have choices and you can default into one, but if it looks like you're going to stay there for a full career, maybe flip over to the other one and have a limited window. And then you build the pension to be like the ones that are fully funded, right? That don't go off the rails when markets collapse. And then you have, no matter which, if you have two good choices, one for the short career worker, one for the long career worker, and you build them both to be like good for taxpayers, good for the employee, risk managed to not have a lot of problems, 
that's a pretty good construct right there. So that was a long answer to your question. I'm sorry, but I mean, that, I think it's, I think what's underneath your question is a bigger, you know, need right. for awareness about the workforce, how it's changing. So, yeah. Thank, well, thank and let's, you know, you mentioned something and I want to hit on this, like is just the portability of pensions. So let's take right. two people, one, uh, let's, let's take someone who's in a 401k plan and someone who's in a defined benefit pension plan. And let's say that there, there are two employees, one works private sector, one works public sector. Uh, if they work nine years and it takes 10 years to vest in that defined benefit pension plan, what they, they leave with nothing. I mean, do they not get anything unless they're I think it's vested? something, but, but not all of it. They leave money on the, you're, you're in the right zone. I right. mean, they leave money on the table. Right. Um, so they're, so yeah. they're in a bit worse place than the person who's in a defined contribution, contribution plan. They own that money that they've been putting in. And then in many cases, their employer has been matching up to a certain point. And, uh, so they can take that 401k and, and transfer it into another 401k and take all of that. They're not any worse for the wear as opposed to someone in a defined contribution plan, uh, I'm sorry, a defined benefit plan would, okay. would, would, would be hurt really by that. Right. Right. I mean, the way that we tend to think of it is if we, in the pensions report, all this really nerdy data that people like us like to go in and grab and play with. And when we do <laughs> grab it and play with it, we see a, a dynamic that it, the curve looks a little different for every plan but you can see how they assume people are going to go through the workforce. Like it, cause the pension system knows this better than anybody. They see when people get hired and when they leave. Right. And it's all very, that's the basics of what they have to manage. Right. Is when you hired, how much you got your starting salary and then how salary changes. And when you leave, those are the big levers that they are working with. Right. So they know it better than anybody. And when you look at their data, what we tend to see is that, um, Say, say, imagine like you hired a hundred people into a public workforce, into a pension system like this year. Okay. What we tend to see is that in most pension systems and most types of government employment, um, by year five, which is when lots of systems would call that their vesting period. You alluded to that earlier. And that just means like, basically you got to stick around that long just to be eligible for even a dollar, you know, of the money that your employer puts in toward your benefit. So what that means is if you get hired as a teacher and you have a five-year vest and you're in a pension system and you decide after year three, wow, this was not what I expected. Or maybe, you know, your spouse is in the military, gets relocated to another state and you got to go. Whatever the circumstances and you exit, that means there are three years that you were in that system. The employer was putting in money, every paycheck to your benefit. And when you leave, that stays and all you get back is what you put in. Mm -hmm. And then from that year five to whatever the full career is, that just means like the amount of employer money that you get back, it's like a sliding scale and you get all of it once you hit the full retirement. So essentially that system is entirely built to keep people, to try to contain them, keep them and lock them in, which made sense back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, 70s, back back in the day when the workforce really was much more centralized, consolidated and public sector worked like that, but it's, it's not the, the norm anymore. Yeah. And so I think you're, you're totally right to be focused on that because I think we are, we've gone through a sea change, but the benefit structure hasn't really kept up. 
So, you know, politicians like to make promises, right? They'll, they'll act as though they're, they're for the state employee or they're for the social security recipient or whatever. They'll make these promises. But the reality that many of these pension plans are underfunded and they can't pay out the benefits that they're promised. Uh, and so somebody's got to come up with those funds to do that. Isn't that, first of all, isn't that just being dishonest with government employees and taxpayers when, when politicians, and I'm not naming anybody in, in particular, but any politician who would say that is really not being honest with either the government employee or the taxpayer. I think there's a real lack of awareness that, um, I mean, exactly as you're saying, if you're underfunding a benefit, you're not funding it. You're not properly stewarding the benefit. We're offering something. We're making it so we like just so everyone is very clear that's listening. Um, the diff one difference between the public sector and the private sector is that the pensions in the public sector are constitutionally protected jurisprudence. Even at some states have explicit constitutional provisions protecting them over and above other protections that the courts have deemed. So essentially the way to think of it is that in most cases, if you offer that benefit to somebody coming into the workforce in the public sector, you are going to pay it no matter what, no matter if you have to shut down another state agency, you have to kick people off your uh, Medicaid rolls. I mean, whatever the horror story. And so when, if you think of it like that, and then you think of that promise being pretty sacrosanct, and then a generation of, I mean, it's not just one politician, it's its the politicians, it's the unions who have who sat there for decades and watched systems that are serving their own members get underfunded and didn't step up to say, how can we help fix, because what's going on, guys? Instead, and that has happened, I will, I will credit, for instance, we worked with our public safety unions in Arizona several years ago to address literally that situation where they, like in their... Um, I would say that with a heads up observation they had, they looked and saw that if a system was getting underfunded, that was going to impact the employers that are in it, which is going to impact the taxpayers, which is going to impact solvency, which is going to impact in the long run, their ability to hire or to have more people coming into the unions. Because if cities can't hire new public safety workers, how are they going to provide a pension? You know, what is, what do they even exist for? And so but that's a pretty rare observation. We don't see that awareness. Typically, the unions and associations have stepped back and said, look, you guys signed on to the dotted line, just like our members did, and you didn't pay for it, and you're on the hook. And technically, they're correct. And so I would say that legally, technically, that is the situation. And so you're right. I don't think we're we're doing a disservice I wouldn't say it's actually lying or something like that. I think it's just the lack of awareness about how anything big like this works with big ticket dollars, you know, the lack of it, real financial acumen on something like this, where legislators are at a disadvantage because they don't understand what they're offering to people. I think that's really more like it. And so when you say to them, Hey, you're underfunded. Like you, you know, you've got a, you got 30 years to pay back billions of dollars. This is a big deal. You should be dealing with this more. And they say, well, yeah, but we have 30 years. Like it's okay. And the pension systems will then come in and say, well, yeah, we have an unfunded liability, but we don't have to pay it literally today. We've got years to pay to fix this. So 
will slowly, and then they kind of find the lightest touch way of trying to deal with it that doesn't solve it. And there's a lot of subtle can kicking and a lot of subtle like, eh, don't worry about it right now, that tends to happen. And that is the insidious thing. It's not so much a deception. It's this false belief and everybody lulling themselves into, you know, a comfort that should not exist. You know, if you're right. hoping like you can pay this off in 30 years, that's a problem. Like if that's your hope, then you're already crossed the line. Like then, you know, you've got a problem. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, but, but I think um, I would say, though, that there are a number of states that have over the last decade or so been, you know, becoming more aware of this. And, you know, it just it's a slog. Because it yeah. takes a lot of education. Let's talk about it. North Dakota is one of those, right? They, yeah. uh, North Dakota did uh, shore up their pension plan. Why should other public sectors look at their plan and what they did? Sure. North Dakota was a prototypical state up until this year where they had, you know, small states. So they had a few billion dollars of unfunded liabilities and, you know, all their state pension systems. And the one system is called North Dakota PERS, Public Employee Retirement System. I'll call it ND PERS just to keep it short. Um, but that system covers state employees and local employees. Um, and essentially, it was a couple billion dollars underfunded. For many years, the legislature had sort of gone around and proposed different solutions trying to get get a hold of it. And what they were basically dealing with was they were doing what a number of states were doing, which was they were they had locked into the law the amount they were putting into it. So they kind of locked in what they were contributing. It turned out to be nowhere close to what they actually needed to contribute. So the plan just like became like a budget deficit, just structurally underfunded internally. That's sort of what happened in the pension system for many years developed a lot of debt. And as we started to look into it, um, and a legislative committee started to look at a bunch of alternative solutions, what we realized is that they were massively underfunded on what was even pretty much the lowest, least generous pension benefit that we've seen in the country. So like, they weren't even promising that much and weren't really even able to sustain that. And so it became a real mess that the legislator got into, legislature got into. And, um, created a you know an interim study committee that looked at it and proposed a a plan moving forward that was enacted this year and that plan involved all new hires um going into a new defined contribution plan a 401k style plan um that's a solid you know um plan it looks it looks walks talks and feels very much like a prototypical corporate you know set fortune 500 type um defined contribution plan with a strong match um, strong employee contributions required to make sure that, that there is a minimum required to be put in so that if somebody works a full career in that plan, they're going to get a good benefit when matched with Social Security and any other you know retirement savings that they may have saved along the way. Interestingly, we modeled it out and looked and basically for like 99% of employees that would be hired at the state or local level into the future, the defined contribution plan that is going to be, you know, has now been passed and acted. It's going to be rolled out over the coming, you know, year uh, to be put into place. That will provide a better, high, meaning higher, bigger retirement benefit for almost ninety-nine percent of people hired into that mm. uh, public workforce, either at the state and local level in North Dakota. And that's a sit. And at the same time, there's always when you talk about this sort of transition, there's always the first reaction from the folks that don't want to do it is usually that, well, wait a second, 
we were fine ignoring the problem. But if you actually make us acknowledge the problem, we're going to then say that you should pay for all the unfunded liability right now. I mean, it's essentially they try to pretend it's not there until you propose doing something with it. And then they try to make that sound like that's an insurmountable deal. And the legislature essentially in their, um, I would say their wisdom in North Dakota, not only dealt with the future situation, putting new people into a new plan design, but they did what's really, we say that you got to treat this like an oil spill or chemical spill, hazardous waste spill. First thing you do is you got to cap the spill. And that's in this case, meaning you don't want more coming out as you're trying to solve the problem, right? And in that case, that's what the DC plan does. It says, we're not going to hire another person onto a like a the leaky boat of a retirement system. Like it's a boat with some holes in it. We're not going to hire anybody new onto that so that we can get that under control. New boat for new people that's rock solid. But they also then put in the financial commitment for the next 20 years, it's going to actually try to pay down responsibly, fix the holes in the leaky boat. That's the 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 past, the legacy. Um, all those retirement benefits that are underfunded today are going to be paid off over the next 20 years on a, an actual realistic schedule. So they they are basically doing everything. They're, they're then cleaning up the spill after they cap the spill, if that makes sense from the yeah. oil spill analogy. And yeah. a lot of states do one or not the other and miss it, and then it never gets better. North Dakota yeah. is doing that together both, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a well-stewarded um, design. That's great. That's great. Um, we talked earlier a little bit about Alaska. Alaska mm-hmm. switched from a defined benefit plan to a defined contribution plan, but now there's okay. several uh, entities in Alaska trying to looking at going back. And I know there's legislators right. who've proposed defined uh, defined uh, benefit pension plans and things like that. And this is in a state, and I know Alaska fairly well. Uh, because it's part of my responsibilities at Americans for Prosperity. But this is a state that kind of sits on the edge of the fiscal cliff, quite honestly. Um, why is it bad for Alaska to look at going back to a defined benefit plan? That's a great question. Um, well, what I would say is that, you know, it's not like we shouldn't think about retirement plans as good, bad the way I would think of it is, is what Alaska, is what they're considering something that will work for the state and work for the employees and work for the taxpayers? Because um, you can achieve a lot of these goals in an infinite number of ways. And what we've seen in Alaska is basically, they did essentially think of Alaska as like North Dakota, you know, but like 17 years ago or something like that. Back in 2005, six, they did essentially um, part of what North Dakota did. Um, they actually didn't really pay off the legacy debt very well, they, but they did put everybody into a new plan design. So they got part of it right. Um, but they could improve that. Um, if you're looking at the workforce, let me answer it maybe this way. There's an infinite number of things that you could do if you're sitting there as Alaska going, well, maybe we think we've got you know, challenges or we, you know, folks are asking for, for different kinds of changes to their benefits. What's happened in Alaska is every year since they went away from a traditional pension, there's been a bill proposed to go back to a traditional pension. And that went nowhere for about a decade or so. And then the last few years, though, it's gotten some life. I think some of the proponents, I mean, both you had COVID, you had a massive shift societally that sort of happened with COVID. Then you had the inflation factor and all of that started to hit at the same time. And what we saw is they 
came back with a an amended idea of going back to a pension, but we'll tweak it in ways so it won't be as as risky as the one that was there before. And that's so that when I'm when I kind of caveat my answer, I would say what they're doing in Alaska right now is proposing essentially a very lightly adjusted version of the old system. They will claim that it's very different, but when you really get down into the details, it's not that different. Um, what they're proposing is taking going back to a risk-laden pension system. If Alaska were talking about, for instance, like what Utah did years ago and said, hey, if you want a pension, sure, you can have that. How about, you know, the state will treat it like a defined contribution plan. We'll put in X amount and then the employees take all the risk, even unfunded liabilities. You know, I don't think anybody would have that big of an issue with it. But that's not what they're proposing. What they're mm-hmm. proposing is we're going to change a few things in the details, sell it as we can't recruit and retain people in Alaska anymore because we have this retirement benefit over this one, which doesn't make much sense in the modern workforce, but that, that's the argument. And if you're in Alaska and you're isolated and you're used to thinking of yourself as isolated anyway, the argument has taken on more potency, you know, I would say among the elected officials there, right? Because they take it more seriously there than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. What we see is that, look, there's an infinite number of ways to skin the cat. If you want some other retirement system, there's 50,000 different ways to build that, not just this one. Um, not one that would create by our modeling and logic um, that we've published and it's out there in the field, um, billions and billions of dollars of additional risk on top of a pension system they never paid off yet from the la- from when they closed it, right? right? And so we would think of that as like almost doubling down on not solving their problem entirely. And we would actually say, why not propose improving the defined contribution plan? If retirement benefits matter and people aren't sticking around in the work, why not make that sweeter? Yeah. Um, there's even a whole section of teachers, you know, Alaska is another state where uh, most people probably don't realize this. There are, there's over 10 million public employees in the country, mostly teachers that are not in social security. Um, it was thought back in the day when Social Security was created and states had pension systems, many did not join, many of the, like, for instance, you know, states did not join into Social Security thinking we've already got this for our employees. So why, you know, they weren't having people move in and out mm-hmm. of employment. And Alaska was one of them. So when they went back and they did a defined contribution plan about 15 years ago, they did not have social security and they even added an additional benefit to replace it. And so nobody knows this outside of Alaska, but everybody but teachers in Alaska is in a defined contribution plan, no social security, but then they get what would have been put into social security, both from the employee and the employer, put it into another DC plan, another defined contribution plan that is invested. It's going to do way better than social security and provide a dual benefit, both through defined contribution mechanisms. Hmm. And so we look at that and say, states should be looking at those kinds of ideas, not looking to retread, go backward, reopen risk where you don't need to take any more on, especially in a state like Alaska, where you you mentioned a fiscal cliff. Um, I think a lot of people think that Alaska can just do whatever it wants because they don't have taxpayers. They have you know, oil and gas money and all of that, but that's not I don't think a realistic way to think about the retirement benefits that you offer, nor right. your sort of long-term spending. So, right, right. 
Well, Lynn, uh, thank you. If people if people sure. want to learn more about the Pension Integrity Project, where can they go? Uh, reason.org, reason.org. That's uh, Reason Foundation's uh, research uh, website. And, um, you know, it's a uh, sister website of reason.com, which a lot of folks that are familiar with our journalism will be aware of. But if you go to reason.org, there will be a pension header at the top, and you can just click on that and find all kinds of uh, nerdy charts and analysis. <laughs> and uh, we're always happy to talk to folks directly, too, because this is complicated material. Um, well, so. Yeah, it's complicated, but it's important. And I, I want to thank you for taking the time to go over it with us today. Well, thank you, too. AFP has been a great leader out there in all the states, um, helping really make the case for um, solvency of public sector pensions. And so just want to acknowledge AFP for that, too. Um, very few out there doing that work. And um, we're, we're happy to be uh, joined alongside by, by AFP out there. So thank well, you for great. that. All right. Well, thanks again. Look, I mean, this is, uh, this is, you're, you've listened to this podcast and you're thinking, well, how does this affect me? It affects you. As a taxpayer, you are on the hook for this. These are benefits that have been promised. They will have to be paid out. And so it is best for politicians not to delay fixing these systems and solving that problem. If they, if they do it today as opposed to 10 years from now, there's going to be a lot less pain uh, to do it. Uh, they should do it right now if, if there is uh, that uh, liability that's there. Thanks for joining us. And uh, just keep in mind, uh, this is uh, our country, liberty and freedom. They're easily taken for granted. Don't take liberty and freedom for granted. Go out there, defend freedom, defend liberty. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.